0: Please do open your Bibles at Matthew chapter 6, and before we look at that together, uh, we will pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of meeting together as your people. We pray for our young people and our children as they leave now. Father, help those who teach them, help them to receive your word. Uh, Lord, may it shape their, their hearts, their thinking, their way that they choose to live and may they trust you and walk with you and we pray for ourselves too lord speak to us help us especially as we look over words that are perhaps familiar to us Uh, lord open our eyes to see more of what you are like open our hearts to be shaped by your word that we might be more like our savior jesus christ in whose name we pray amen now a survey Conducted by Tear Fund about five years ago in the UK, so this is UK stats, suggests that about half of adults in the UK pray. It's quite—I think it's quite surprising, isn't it? Half of them pray. In fact, some included in that figure, so some of the people surveyed would also say that they're really quite unsure about whether God even exists. Some of them fairly persuaded he doesn't, and yet they still feel they ought to pray to him, maybe just hedging their bets in some way. Now, what do they pray about? Well, according to this survey, 71% pray for the safekeeping of their families. 40% pray for healing for people, for themselves. And about 24%, so about a quarter of people, perhaps pray about the suffering of the wider world. Now it seems then that there is something innate within us as human beings that feels the need to call out to, to a higher power somehow, and to bring things to a higher power. That's right, isn't it? It's interesting. I remember a, a chap who worked uh, in the military uh, as, as, a, as a chaplain saying that you know, when, when soldiers are about to jump out of an aircraft, there are no atheists. He says, you know, for the first time, going to do the jump. There's no atheists in that aeroplane. Everybody is praying. It's interesting, isn't it? So now, Rachel Traweek, Bishop of Gloucester, commented to The Guardian at the time of this survey, saying, look, we should not be surprised by these recent findings, which reflect human longing for the mystery and love of God amidst the experiences of daily life. There's a sense there, isn't there, in, in each one of us? And since time immemorial then, since records began, human beings have called upon God, or they've called upon the gods, some kind of higher power, to do those things that are beyond their control to do anything about, to do something perhaps about their misery, or to send blessings, to send the rain and grow the crops, to grant them prosperity, to protect them from their enemies, all of these things that are very deep concerns in our life, living in a broken world. But that pagan understanding of prayer, and by pagan I just mean not Christian, uh, and pagan understanding really of God himself, typically sees God, uh, typically, as being like a vending machine. Okay? Okay? This is the pagan view, the non-Christian view of God. You present the offerings, the sacrifices, the religious activity, even the prayers. That's like putting your coins in the slot, isn't it? And then you input the request, what it is that you want. You press all the right buttons and out pops the good you desire. That's really the hope of how prayer will work for you. You scratch the God's backs and he or she is more likely, at least, to scratch yours. That's the hope. And that's why so often I I think, in a crisis, right, in a crisis, or when you're jumping out of an aeroplane, prayers are made uh, with rash promises behind them, yeah? We promise, you know, God, if you do this for me, I'll start going to church. (laughs) Yeah, I'll turn my life around. I'll do this, I'll do that. And For example, historical examples, people like Martin Luther, the great reformer, to the great consternation of his father. Martin Luther, caught in a rainstorm, prays out, cries out, you know, if if he will be saved from this rainstorm, he'll become a monk. He'll leave his career in law uh, and he'll go and join a monastery. His dad's absolutely livid about it. Or you could take a a biblical example. I was reading recently in my quiet times this week, the story of Jephthah. You know the story of Jephthah, Jephthah in the book of Judges? who promises to offer as a burnt offering to God whatever comes out of his home to greet him when he comes back from battle. What a stupid thing to do. Doesn't your heart just break for the idiocy of that? His daughter comes out of the house. But that is not the understanding of prayer that a citizen of the kingdom of heaven has. That's what we're looking at here, isn't it? That's what this most famous of all of Jesus' sermons is about, you remember? It's about the value and the ethics of God's kingdom, the kingdom of which his people are citizens. This is about how his true disciples should live and act as part of that kingdom that we now belong to through Jesus Christ. And we've, we've just seen, so last time, if you were here with us last week... That just like the way that we are to obey God's laws, the way that we are to do our righteous acts as we come into chapter 6 has to be more than just outward. That's the point, isn't it? That's the point being made. It's going to be more, uh, more about more than just looking impressive to the onlooker. It needs to be inward. The way we keep God's law should be inward. The way that we do our acts should be inward. It's about our hearts, that which only God sees. That has to be right. Our motives are really important, really important, more important than what we do. And in this vein, then, Jesus has already warned that when we, you remember last week, when we give, give for a heavenly reward, Don't give to be seen and admired by men and everybody think, oh, look how generous Andy is. Don't do it. It's better that nobody knows at all than that you're doing it for recognition. And when you pray, Jesus says, first of all, we looked at this last week, it should not be for a show. Don't use the fancy words so that people will think you're something special. It shouldn't be a show, it, should be, it shouldn't be performed for crowds, it should be better done in secret, says Jesus, if that's your heart, better done in secret to safeguard your heart against trying to pray to men rather than actually praying to God. Do it for an audience of one, says Jesus, paraphrasing him. And he continues now in verse 7, so look at verse 7 with me, what we've just read this morning. And when you pray, so he's continuing on prayer, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's wonderful, isn't it? Tiago reminded us about that just earlier, didn't he? Do you see, pagan prayers, Jesus is using the word here, isn't he? Pagan prayers spring from this wrong understanding of what God is like. A view of God as being you know, a a bit distant, really, distracted, disinterested. You have to get his attention somehow. Remember the story, go back to the Old Testament again, it's a wonderful example of this. Do you know the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal? 450 priests of the false god Baal on a mountain, challenged to get Baal to acknowledge them and take an offering from them. And they are cutting themselves and crying out, 1 Kings chapter 18, do read it, brilliant story. They cry out, says the writer there, from from morning until noon, they're cutting themselves till their blood flows to try and get the attention of this God that won't listen. And as if, you know, to over-egg the pudding, the writer tells us, they cut themselves until their blood flowed but received no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. The citizens of God's kingdom, though, understand that God doesn't hear us because of our many words or a song and dance that we make. He's not like the dad who doesn't want to pay for the expensive toy that his children uh, are requesting and they must wear him down with a campaign of constant asking and asking and asking. Dad, can I have an iPhone? Dad, can I have an iPhone? Dad, can I have an iPhone? That, that, that sort of thing. Have a look at this picture. Do you know what the, this is a picture of? Do you know what those are? This is, this is classic. This is, this is classic paganism. Why? These are Tibetan prayer wheels. You spin them and they issue a prayer. All you've got to do is just get them moving around and the prayers are popping out. That's the idea behind them. The pagans, indeed, have automated their prayers. That's how to get God's attention. They're hoping that repetition will get these prayers heard. But no, citizens of the kingdom of heaven know that, that the God that they are praying to knows the number of hairs on their heads. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without the God that we believe in knowing. He's a loving attentive, caring Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, you might indeed ask, well, why pray at all then? I mean, if God knows what I need before I ask him, why ask, right? That's a good question. Actually, do you know what the most simplistic answer, there's a lot to say about that, but the most simplistic answer uh, is first and foremost to point out simply because the god that we believe in is not a vending machine he's not he's a personal god he is a god of relationship that is why prayer is so important it builds relationship you know even as a human parent we're a little bit like this in that we can we can quite often anticipate the needs of our children before they ask they don't need to ask do they quite often We might even know their their need before they know it. They know what they're going to need. But it would be terrible for both parent and child if that meant no communication ever happened because it's just not necessary. There'd be no relationship. And so we, with this understanding of God, we joyfully bring our requests to him, knowing that he hears knowing he already knows our needs, knowing that he will give us not simply the things that we want, but actually what we really need and what will do us the most good. That is how we pray with faith, isn't it? And so we must then also learn learn to, to pray, not like pagans who have no real relationship with the God that they're speaking to, but to pray with kingdom priorities. That's what we're looking at this morning here as we go through the Lord's Prayer. We are to pray as ambassadors, staying in close contact with our King. And it's to teach us this, that God gives us, that Jesus gives us here uh, in Matthew chapter 6, a model prayer. That's what we've got really here, isn't it? Because verse 9 tells us, this then is how you should pray so notice, before we, before we go any further, and I know this point gets made a lot, Jesus does not say, this is what you should pray. Okay, It's a very simple point, perhaps too obvious. As if it was his particular desire that you should repeat these words on a regular basis. We've not been instructed to do that. I mean, There's nothing wrong with doing it. That's not what he's instructing us to do. Rather, he says, this is how. This is how you should pray. This is what, in other words... The citizen of my kingdom has on their heart when they come to pray. Please hear that this morning, okay? So, so when, you come, when you come to pray, what's going... Remember this whole sermon is about what's going on in your heart, what's going on inside you. This is what you want on your heart as you come to God in prayer. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, this is, this is what you come with. So first point then, really in verse 9 is, you come remembering who you're praying to. Think about who you're praying to. This then is how you should pray, says verse 9. Our Father in heaven. Well, now, there's, there's, there's a lot that could be said just about those first four words. But the most prominent thing there, I guess, really, is to, to acknowledge here. God is your Father. If you're a citizen of God's kingdom, God is your Father. That is an amazing thing, actually, for Jesus to say in the days that he's living in. It's not that Jesus was the first person to ever refer to God as Father. Okay, you can find that in Jewish writings. But it's what he brings into, into that title for his disciples to actually understand it. Okay, it's a new, different level, really, going on here. See, the Jews might have considered that God was the father of their nation. He's the father of Israel, but even so, God was most commonly addressed, a Jewish person would address God with titles such as Sovereign Lord or King of the Universe, these high and lofty titles, which, understand, which, is, which is a right understanding of who God is, yes. But we have a different understanding, really, of this. Jesus teaches his disciples to think in terms of God's affection to us even as individuals. The gospel re- reveals to us, doesn't it, the astounding truth of our adoption, adopted through Christ into the household of God. Think about that. That's what the gospel teaches us. You've been brought into, the, into God's household. The family. When you're praying, you're coming as a family member. You've been brought into a unique relationship. The relationship, you've been brought into the relationship that Jesus Christ himself has with his Father. What a staggering thought. So that just as he cried out in the night of his deepest anguish, when he was in deepest need, he cries out, Abba, Father. So also we are told, staggeringly, by that that spirit of sonship, we too cry Abba, father. Abba is perhaps a word that gets a bit misunderstood. It's not a juvenile expression like daddy. That's not really what's going on there, as some suggest. Rather, it's an affectionate, familiar term. That's the point. It's more like papa. It's a familiar term of of, of acknowledging a father who loves. The truth in this first line reveals to us... The awesome, transcendent God, he who dwells in heaven, as as the line goes, our Father in heaven, the one who made and sustains the universe, loves and cares deeply for those who are his. We're not just ambassadors of Christ. We're children of our heavenly Father. That's profound, isn't it? Before we even get into the prayer. But that's how we come to God in prayer and secondly this opening line reminds us just very very briefly that we're part of a family when we come to prayer he is not just my father but our father in heaven and so indeed our priority in prayer is then not just to pray for ourselves we pray on behalf of all of that family that should be on your heart not just what i want all your brothers and sisters in christ you bring them on your heart. Now, the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, is not a comprehensive prayer. This isn't all that there is to be, to be said about prayer. It isn't all that we should pray for. For example, there's, no, there's actually no thanksgiving in it. You notice that? There's no prayers of intercession for others in it, and those are good things to do. But it does tell us, as we said earlier, what the priorities of, of God's kingdom are, with regards to our prayer this prayer i'm sure that many of us are familiar with contains six petitions in it six petitions six things that the citizens of god's kingdom should regularly have on their hearts then when they come to prayer prayer and the first three are what we want for god just so you've got a nice structure in your head first three what we want for god the second three are what we want from god what we want for god what we want from god so let's look at those in turn. I'm sorry if I, if I, if I take a little bit of extra time this morning. I just want to, there's a lot of material, okay? But we will we'll work fairly rapidly. So work with me here. What you want for your Father in heaven. Are you looking at the page? Verse nine. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first thing that we want, then, is for his glory. What we want for God, we want for his glory. We want God's name to be hallowed. Now, what does that mean? We we don't just worship a name, do we? We worship the one behind the name. In the Bible, a name is synonymous with the person, right? I hope you get that as, as, as very basic. We're praying here that all men, women, and children, everything in creation would acknowledge that God is their almighty, all-wise, all-wonderful creator. That's what we're praying for, for God, isn't it? That every tongue would confess, that everyone would acknowledge this. A name is also synonymous with reputation. We speak, don't we, of someone's name being dragged through the mud. Yeah? Meaning they've been dishonored in the sight of all. Yeah, their name is dirt. But here we're praying that God's name, in contrast, would be hallowed, that it would be acknowledged as holy. That's really what the word means. Holy is a Bible word that captures the idea, I think most fundamentally, of otherness. God is holy because there is nothing like Him in all of creation. In other words, he has no peers. He has no equals. He transcends everything that he has made, everything in the entire cosmos. He alone is truly good and just and sovereign. He's holy. And we are praying then that the world around us which you know previously in the sermon has been described as, as a pretty dark and, and rotten place, that the world around us would acknowledge this and join in with praising him and lifting his name high. And as with then all of these petitions that we're going to see in the Lord's Prayer, their application starts with us. That's why it's so important we get to grips with them, isn't it? You cannot pray that petition without you yourself hallowing God's name. Are we living in such a way, then, that God's name, his reputation, is being hallowed? Are you living that way? It's what an ambassador does for the kingdom, isn't it? Remember how Jesus has already taught we ought to let our light shine before men. Chapter 5, verse 16. Why, why do we let our light shine before men? Do you remember that expression? That they may see your good deeds. And do what? What? And praise your Father in heaven and hallow his name, right? So that's our first attitude we come to in prayer. We want God's name lifted high. And even our lives, as we pray this, we want our lives to do that, don't we? Secondly, we pray for his reign, that God's kingdom would come. Now, We've already looked at this in our series. God's saving reign, his kingdom has already begun, but is yet to be completely consummated. We live in that in-between awkward time that we thought about at the beginning of the series. God's kingdom has arrived. Jesus has dealt a, a fatal blow to all of his enemies. He has cried from the cross. It is finished. So the war has been decisively won. And if you've put your trust in Christ for salvation, if you've cried out to him, called upon his name, your salvation is certain, right? Because the war has been won, but the battles still rumble on. Our world is is broken in deep ways. And these battles that we have with sin and with the world and with everything around us, they will continue until the king returns. Surely, then, we want to cry this petition, don't we, from our hearts? Oh, Lord, your kingdom come in the midst of the battle. The kingdom ultimately comes, you see, with the coming of the king. That's when the kingdom will really be here. And so it's no surprise, then, that the Bible actually ends with the petition that the church has cried in every age. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22, have a look at this pretty much the last line of the bible he who testifies to this th- these things says yes i am coming soon amen come lord jesus that's behind the petition lord your kingdom come but it is hard to pray such a thing if your heart is still set on things in this world isn't it do you honestly pray this do you actually, actually, even honestly want this? As you look around the world at, at you, are you so still attached to the things of this world that actually, God, if you could, if you could let your kingdom come in about five years, please? Yeah. Are there things that you're holding on to—hopes and dreams and people and possessions—that might stop you praying this petition? The citizen of God's kingdom comes to God in prayer. Wanting that kingdom to come. Thirdly, that God's will would be done. If, if you read through any of the, the wonderful descriptions in the Old Testament prophets about what God's kingdom will actually be like, uh, you'll find that his is a reign of, of truth and justice and righteousness and peace. It's a reign of the world that we would love to live in. That is God's plan and God's will for for his kingdom. What else is God's will? Well, it is God's will that all kinds of men, women, and children would be saved. It is God's will that his people, those who profess to follow him, will become more and more holy, that we become more and more like Christ. That's his will. But over all of these things, the Bible spells out God's plan in Ephesians chapter 1, take a look at what Paul writes here. in Ephesians chapter 1, he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will. So you've, had it, you've had it made known to you, God's real will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfilment. This is where it is all going, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ, that everything in all of creation will be ruled by Christ and brought together under his good, righteous, holy, and perfect rule. And so when we pray this, we are praying that God will do something about the things that are not his will on the earth, aren't we? We, pray, we come to prayer with a, with a heart concerned for what we see in the world that is not God's will. We're longing that his kingdom will come and that his will will be done on the earth. And when we pray this, first of all then, we are committing ourselves to learning all we can about his will. Aren't we? How else can you pray this? And secondly, we are pledging to do that will. With his help, we're pledging to do it as much as we understand what it is. That's, why, that's how we come to pray this line. So what do we want for God in this first half of the prayer? We want the world to acknowledge how glorious he is and to praise him. We want his kingdom finally to come in all of its fullness, to end this creation that's subject to sin and frustration and pain, and for that new perfect creation to be ushered in by the return of our king. That's the big vision we come with, to, to with, with prayer. We want to see his will perfectly done on the earth, even in our own lives, just as it is done in heaven. That's what we want for God. Now, in the second half, let's look just briefly then at what we want from our Father in heaven. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one are some interesting lines here. First of all, what do we want from God? We want all of our daily needs from him. We want all of our daily needs from him. Give us today our daily bread. For most people in Jesus' day, today's pay purchased today's bread, right? It was a hand-to-mouth society. And when we, we come to a line like this one, give us today our daily bread, it almost feels silly to suggest in the wealthy West that we need to petition God for bread. We've got so much. I, I, I checked this week, you still, uh, a, bait, a, lo- a loaf of bread, a sliced bread, a basic one, uh, if you can call it bread, uh, it can be obtained from most supermarkets for 45p. 45p. And yet, we have queues at the food banks. Isn't it tragic? Perhaps, actually, the fact that most of us here, we don't need to worry about buying bread, maybe that's why we find this line such a challenging one to us. But bread, then, is symbolic for all of us of our most basic daily needs, and it is important. The point of this petition is to remind us that we ought to depend on God for all of those things. That in reality... All that we have, even the fact that we live in a country where we don't think about buying our daily bread hardly. We've got to learn to trust our Father to meet all of our physical needs. It's important that we do that. It all comes from Him. James chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 4, they they remind us, they're, they're powerful, clear verses that remind us that everything that we receive is from God. It is not provided from ourselves. And perhaps that's why this line is so important to remind us, you're not providing for you. You might think you are. That's not how a citizen of God's kingdom thinks. God owes us nothing but graciously with fatherly love provides, day by day. And so he deserves constant thanksgiving and constant worship because he does so. I don't know if you've thought about this. I find it a simple and yet profound point that the actual act of asking is in fact worship it's a worshipful thing to do have you thought about that shopping list prayers let's not let's not write them off too quickly because in the act of asking we put ourselves in the place of need that's what you're doing when you ask I am needy I come with empty hands I come dependently of course it depends what you're asking for doesn't it but actually, in the act of asking, we come empty in our right way. And we put the one that we ask when we ask for things, in this case, God himself, in place of provider. You are the abundant provider. I am the needy one. I mean, that, that is worship, isn't it? We look up to him. We acknowledge his abundance and his grace. This line makes us do that, doesn't it? I mean, the thing is, has our wealth made us a, a thankless people? Not acknowledging God's goodness. Again, don't, don't write off th- th- praying and thanking God for your food every time you eat. What a wonderful thing to do! Actually, do it with the, Of course, it's got to be. You know, what's going on in your heart is really important when you do that. Don't let it just become a pattern of words. You know, rubber dub dub, thanks for the grub, or whatever it is that people will say. No, don't do that. It has to come from a heart. It's a serious point, actually. I, We come with dependency. We need to grow and learn that dependency. The Bible considers thanklessness a serious sin. This petition instructs our hearts to be humble and thankful and dependent on God (laughs) every day. Second petition, what we want from God, for our debts to be forgiven. So fundamental. Food for your stomach, forgiveness for your debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And of course, the debt being spoken about here is the debt of our sin. That's the debt. Every offence that we commit against God adds up and accumulates and it mounts up. And every offence that we commit against our neighbour is also an offence against God, who's told us to love our neighbour. And so it accumulates and more and more. And Jesus applies God's law to us then to lay on top of it. In chapter 5, feel the true weight of that debt. It's not just what you're doing. It's what's going on in your heart. It's not just your actions, but it's your thoughts and your attitudes. And the debt mounts up and up. Jesus told a powerful story, story about this. Drawing a parallel between this and, and that of a, a story of a, of a great king who cancels a truly colossal debt owed by one of his servants. We're talking about billions. It's a a staggering debt. Such is the grace of our king, this great, gracious, merciful king who forgives just an unfathomable debt. That's who we are. That's what God is like. Jesus gives his precious, priceless blood, the blood of the beloved Son of God, the darling of God, to pay the debt of our sin. And daily we need to look for that forgiveness. But there is here actually what seems to be a caveat. Did you see that? As we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, this is a line I think it gets fleshed out in verses 14 to 15 if you look at them. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Uh, If you are bearing a grudge against someone, that verse should make you squirm, shouldn't it? In the story Jesus told, that servant, you see, the second half of the story, he finds a servant who owes him a far smaller sum and forces him to pay it. Even sending him to prison because he can't. He has be, you've got to get the story. He's been, been forgiven a sum that makes this little debt feel like dust on the scales, actually. Trivial. And he is infinitely better off than he was even earlier on that day, where he owed an unpayable debt and has been forgiven. should have broken him, shouldn't it? If he had truly repented, if his pleas before the king were genuine, surely his heart would have changed. He'd have written off any debt that anyone else owed him. He cannot forgive like his king did. And then he too, in the end of the story then, is, is not forgiven. The king is furious. His debt is restored. He puts him in prison. The point is profound, isn't it? If we cannot forgive others... Then we have never really clearly grasped, never grasped in our hearts, through repentance, through faith, the incredible truth of the gospel. Let that weigh on you. Perhaps we've never grasped the magnitude of our debt to God. Maybe that's the problem. Or the absolute impossibility that we ourselves can pay it. Or we're labouring under the mistaken belief that we still actually do owe God and must pay him back. So people that owe us ought to pay us back. Whatever it is, you can't have truly believed the gospel. And your debt is still not forgiven. You don't want to be there. This petition reminds us of the size of our debt and our daily need. It softens, it breaks our hearts towards others. The third and final thing then is that we pray for deliverance I won't be long but this is a really important line isn't it and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one I mean it reads funny okay I I, I used to teach youth a a lot uh, and this I find just a really hard line to 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 explain why is it written this way we would expect that Jesus would tell us to pray keep us from temptation wouldn't we Look at the way it's written. I mean, I was talking to someone about this this week and he'd never really seen a problem with it. Oh, maybe it's just the way my mind works. We know, you see, that God never tempts people. That's why it's such a funny line. You know, James tells us in James chapter one, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. So what's going on here? Professor Don Carson suggests the explanation might be very simple. You've got to be wary when someone with professor in their name says something's very simple. But what we have here, according to him, and I think he's right here, is a figure of speech. Now, those who are grammar nuts, it's called uh, Lilotis. No? No? Nobody? Okay, It's like when we say, not a few. Right? So the women's... Football World Cup was attended by not a few England supporters. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. That's a lotis, apparently, which we mean absolutely loads, right? Not a few means absolutely loads were there. And Jesus does this elsewhere when John records him saying, all that the Father gives me, this is a good example, will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, says Jesus. And Jesus is not saying he's not put it this way. He is not just saying he's going to receive all who come to him. What he's is saying is that he will certainly keep them. He's it's been negated. It's been flipped around. Here, then, in the example of the Lord's Prayer, into temptation is what is being negated. I hope you're following this. One might paraphrase it just to make it clear here. What Jesus seems to be saying here is, lead us not into temptation, but away from it, into righteousness, into situations where far from being tempted, we'll be protected and, and kept righteous for the kingdom's sake. And in doing this, we'll be delivered from the evil one. Now, when did you last pray this? It ought to be our constant prayer, shouldn't it, as we battle with sin and temptation in, a, in, this, in this frustrated, broken world. And if God tells us this is how we should pray, that these are the concerns we should bear on our hearts before our Father, then surely these are the very petitions that our Father in heaven is eager to grant to his children. So ask, right? In these last days, days of decay and darkness, where we've been called to be salt and to be light, let's live as children of light. Let's throw off all of the things that this world wants to entangle us with and let us pray with kingdom hearts, a concern for God's glory, his reign and his will, for our needs, for our debts. And for our deliverance. Let's do that together as we, as we finish up. The words will come up on the screen. You'll be very familiar with them. There's that little line at the end as well, just to finish it off as a prayer. But let's, let's pray this. And, and I'm just praying that with a little bit more understanding, perhaps, this morning, as God has spoken to you, with a little bit more of the right heart, we'll just say these words together. Let's do them now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power, the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we do pray that these things would be constantly on our hearts. May we live in such a way that people see what we do and glorify you. May your kingdom grow even by our witness right here in Walton until it fills the earth and our king returns. May we know and obey your will more fully. May we depend on your grace for our every need. May those who forgive us May, may, we, may we forgive those who sin against us just as we ourselves have been forgiven. And may we know your deliverance from sin as you yourself bring to completion the work that you've begun in each one of us on the day that Jesus Christ, our King, returns. For we ask it in his most glorious name. Amen.